This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time. Here we are at Core Brain Journal, and we have two delightful, interesting women who are coming to us to talk to us about autism spectrum disorder and ways that they have to really help those kids with language development, intellectual development, interpersonal development, and it's going to be through social stories. ASD is a big subject, and today we have Kim Tice and Vanita Litvak. Litvak. <laughs> I'm trying to do the Polish pronunciation. It's probably not even Polish, okay? <laughs> So anyway, Kim and Vanita, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. So it's going to be fun. So what I'm going to do really is say a couple words from our sponsor, which and then we'll go from there, and then we'll go ahead and get started. So Core Brain Journal is sponsored by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved targeted mind science details. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond everyday guesswork, which is the standard of care right now, friends, guesswork. So they also provide multiple training webinars for both the public and for those interested medical providers that really want to grow their understanding of how to use that data effectively in their offices globally, in their global outfit. Check out their website for references and testing details and take note of this. In our partnership with them, you can register for a complimentary test drawing over there. And each week is different. They've got a number of different tests, like the organic acid test. And that particular test on the open market's $219 unless you're marking it up, which we, we never mark them up at our place. So you can see what you can register for one of those tests. And that is at greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ, Core Brain Journal CBJ. Run over there and see what's going on with them. You have a lot to learn over there. It's very, very interesting. So let's go on and talk to these delightful women about what they're doing professionally. I'm going to do a brief bio on them, and then we're going to get started with what they're doing. So let's start with Kimmer. So Kimberly Tice. This is terrible, isn't it? <laughs> Kimberly Tice. Yeah, Tice. She provides intervention in language learning, literacy, and feeding to people with autism. Did I read that right? Yeah. Feeding to people with autism spectrums. What's the feeding? Tell me about that. Oh, sure. Um, so we're both speech language pathologists. And like I said, it's a birth to death profession. So yeah. you can treat kiddos with artic disorders, language, literacy, but feeding, there's feeding is like a huge, I feel like it's spread so much since I became a certified SLP, especially with the rise in autism spectrum disorders. There's so many kiddos that have sensory issues. So um, they need feeding therapy. You know, I mean, oh my gosh. We got, we'll talk about that. I mean, I, I looked at it, I glanced over the intro. <laughs> I'm looking at the intro. I didn't, and it hit me when I'm talking. It's like, oh my gosh, what, so we'll talk about this. We'll ask more about it. Thanks yeah, so much. Sure. So that's going to be interesting. And I got to tell you about my interview with Dr. Bill Walsh. On the End of Autism. I don't know if you've heard that one. He's written a no, book on the End of Autism. He's into the biomedical measurements of how you can actually figure out what to do about it. Yeah. Intervene on it earlier and earlier. 
And mm-hmm. his point is, if we really understand what the biomedical is, we can actually significantly interfere and interrupt the uh, illness. Anyway, oh. back to it. So she's a speech language pathologist and a certified special education person. She co-authors the Lou Knows What to Do book series and co-hosts the Speechy Side Up podcast with Vanita Litvek. She is an affiliate of ASHA, which we'll hear about in just a minute, and special interest groups, language learning and education, and 12 augmentation, and what's that 12 there for? So basically, we're both certified by ASHA. That's the American Speech Language Hearing Association. Yeah. And then within ASHA, there's specialty groups for what you specialize in. So I I fit in SIG 1 is language learning and literacy, and then SIG 12 is AAC, which we also specialize in. It's alternative augmentative communication. So people who need additional communication aids to express themselves. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, when, when you, yeah, that's, I didn't know there were those subgroups. That's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. So that's Kimmer. And then we're going to do Vanita. And Vanita serves people with autism spectrum disorder in a variety of settings as an SLP, speech and language pathology person. You got it. And augmentation and alternative communication consultant. She also co authors the Lou Knows What to Do book series and co hosts the Speechy Side Up podcast. These guys have the gift of gab. You can hear that. And she is an affiliate also with that same group and those same subsets. And they gave us an email. I'm not going to quote that right now because they may not want the email. But the bottom line is these guys have extensive experience in speech and language development with kids who are developmentally delayed. I mean, in, in a broad spectrum, that's what's going on. So yes. when I said to them, we started talking I, and they said, hey, listen, is this right thing for this whole core brain journal thing? And I'm like, absolutely. Because Look, I should know about what you guys know, and I don't know what you guys know. And if I don't know it, and I'm a child psychiatrist and I'm dealing with spectrum kids, this is a problem. This is definitely a problem. So even though you may be several years younger than me and look like innocence, you're not innocent because you guys are pros on this whole thing. I'm the innocent. So what's going to happen is that I think we have a lot of listeners out there that are innocents on this as well. So let's get started with sort of a basic thing of how did you guys get interested in it in the first place? How do you work together? What's the need here? What are we missing? What do we need to do to take this conversation to the next utilitarian level? So start with any of that you want to. Sure. So we both, we met in 2014 or 15. We were both working at a charter school for kiddos with autism as contract speech pathologists. And at this particular school, Every different state provides services in a different way, but because of the way the therapy minutes are, we did a lot of whole language groups with kiddos. So the need for social stories arises, and we definitely did not come up with the concept of social stories. They've been in the field used by professionals and teachers and therapists for many years. Carol Gray is actually the person who coined the term social story. And basically, it's a story to teach a child on the spectrum or even any child, really typical children, about a specific scenario and what's expected of them there. So, you know, we work with kiddos with ASD, so they have deficits in communication, social skills, and the sensory piece that can sometimes make like trips to new places and new experiences really difficult on their parents, you know, and whoever they're with. So for many years, people have been writing social stories, which is basically a brief story that teaches the skills or a specific communication skill and explains more about a scenario. 
And the thought behind it, and there's research that proves that when we're preparing these kiddos for a new scenario, that reduces their anxiety and some negative behaviors that can occur from the anxiety. Did I cover that okay? <laughs> Sounds great. Now, let me ask you a question because I almost interrupted you, but I was, you were on a good roll there. Now, this is how basic I am, guys. I'm gonna, <laughs> you're going to know how non-intelligent I am on this particular. I don't have a skill set here. Okay. What is whole language? You oh, saw. oh, yeah. Like a whole language group, meaning sometimes we do pull-out therapy with one individual child working on a specific target goal. And that's where you bring the student outside of the classroom to provide one-on-one -on -one therapy. Whole language therapy would be where you go into the classroom along with the teacher and aides in the classroom and provide your therapy to a whole group of children. Wow, that would be wild. <laughs> that's why I mean, we that, have that would be a big challenge. <laughs> It's Especially the if, if, if they've got developmental delay issues going on and they're mixed up, you know, that, that would be amazing. That'd be really, exactly. so that's so what whole language is. Yeah. And when you have to provide therapy in a group setting like that, obviously you want a tool that's going to meet everyone's needs as much as possible. So that's how we started looking for books that could be read that would be meaningful, teach important lessons and prepare them for real life scenarios. So how many books have you guys written? We've written six, five of them are, have been published and released and one more is on the way out. But before Lou happened, we started writing them in the office and that's kind of how it came to be. Like we kept writing social stories to teach skills or teachers would say, hey, we went on a field trip and it was a disaster. We need you to write a social story about a field trip or, you oh, know, fantastic. people would ask. Yeah, so then we were that's like, so how published? It was really cool. And we've had to write specific ones for kiddos, but we started, you know, not always wanting to reinvent the wheel and write a story again and again and again that was specialized. And when you look, there's not a lot of books that teach about novel scenarios. Like our Lou Knows What to Do titles are, you know, supermarket, going to a restaurant, going to a doctor's office, birthday parties, or if you have a food allergy, which is super common among kids in the spectrum. So there weren't books pre-made to teach about those. There are books that say like, hands aren't for hitting or teeth aren't for biting, but that's like more about telling a kiddo not to behave in a certain way, not preparing them for an entire scenario. So would you differentiate this raises a question because we see people coming, I may have an idea for a book, it may not. Don't worry if you reject me on this. Okay. <laughs> but the issue would be, do you see a difference between going to a regular medical doctor's where they might do shots and needles and look at their throat and all this and a psychiatrist's office? In what way? Well, I'm, I'm thinking what happens, I think there's a certain level of preparation that would be helpful because what happens, they, they don't know what's going to happen in a psychiatrist's office. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. You're seeing somebody about your mind health or how you think or how you feel. What kind of questions are they going to ask? What's the situation? Is your mother going to be in the room with you? They take you in a different room. Do they do shots and needles? Do they, what do they do in there? What, you know, that whole thing, because... I think that might be useful even for kids who aren't on the spectrum. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's just like, how do, you, sure. how do you know what is going to happen with that doctor? Yeah. We can, we can collaborate on this book. I won't take it. <laughs> what happens here is people don't know what to expect, and different doctors do different things. Mm -hmm. You know, some people don't even talk to the kids. That's my pet peeve. You know, you got a kid come in there. I've had adolescents. They come in and see me and they've been seeing a psychiatrist for years. And I'm talking to them. I'm like, the kid's 17 years old. He's like, I don't, I don't even want to talk to you to tell you the truth. I'm like, yeah, you don't really care what I think. I'm like, well, give me a shot. Well, no one else has. So you will talk to my parents the whole time. Well, let's get on it. Yeah. And that whole 
thing. So doctors differ in what they expect. But I think, I think there should be an increase in the standard of care in terms of how we discuss with kids what their problems are and how they can help the doctor actually participate in their care. Absolutely. It's a big deal. Something to think about. Yeah, that should be an open dialogue for sure. And I think that, like, it was a great point you brought up. I mean, doctor's offices can be completely different. And we actually provide a lot of training to parents on how to even make their own social stories because, I mean, we can only publish so many books at a time, but there's so many different social skills or scenarios that still need to be addressed. So we have, we'll talk to parents about the key characteristics you should be either putting in a social story or looking for in a social story. And we could talk about that too. Yeah. For example, like you want to use like a patient in a positive voice because, and not negative words. You don't want to know and don't. It's much better to tell the child what you expect of them rather than to tell them what not to do. Because no kid wants to read a book about with just rules that say no running, no hitting, no, you know? So instead it's better to say like, it's safe to use walking feet or, you know, something. Yeah. When I w- we were doing a training recently, a parent had given us an example. I guess their child was like picking up food off the floor and putting it in their mouth. And they're like, we keep telling him, don't pick that up. Don't pick that up, which would be a negative phrase. And they're like, mm-hmm. how could we rephrase that? So we were like, you could tell them we pick up the food and we put it in the garbage. So we're not using the words no, and mm-hmm. we're giving them a positive alternative, what they should be doing with that instead. Mm-hmm. So that's what we mean by rephrasing that in a positive tone. Totally with you on that. You know, I've uh, been on this one theme. You'll get a kick out of this because I just did a video product. I'll send you this stuff because you'd be interested in it. But uh, there's a great confluence between executive function problems and ADD and ASD issues. So what happened is years ago in 96, I got onto this thing of unmanageable cognitive abundance, thinking too much. So those people have specific problems because they're thinking so much they can't get anything done. So I've reframed all of attention deficit disorder by saying it's not attention deficit, it's attention abundance. And that if you really think of what's going on with executive function, it's an abundance of stuff and people can't find the boxes and where to put it. Wow. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, so my feeling is we should just change the whole thing and change the whole diagnostic coding system if we're actually looking at brain function instead of the fashion show that's out there. Like, is he hyperactive or inattentive? Give me a break. And then if we come up to it, it's still going to be a deficit. That is not a way to approach a developing therapeutic alliance with a child. So I disabuse them of that. They come in and say, look, I'm not, I don't have ADD. Okay. I'm with you on that. Even though I wrote a book called New ADHD Medication Rules, brain science and common sense. I put ADHD on because when people, they don't know what executive function is. So, but when I get into, I start taking exactly what you guys are saying. Let's go ahead and call it something else. Sorry to talk so much about myself. All I'm doing is saying I'm with you on this whole thing. No, I like that terminology. Yeah, Yeah, I love that terminology. So then person can feel like, hey, this is what's actually going on with me. Mm -hmm. I've got so many things and I don't know where to put it. Mm -hmm. That's a different thing than, wow, you're really having a problem, kid. You right. know, pathologizing the situation, you look like you're lost. No, I'm busy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, anyway, so so how did you guys actually, did you start working at the same place again? Where you, and, and then you, you got, you teamed up there. And yes. You started, and you started talking about this and saying, we could do this. We could write a book. And that's interesting. Definitely. So that, what kind of people do you have on your podcast? 
We actually have other speech language pathologists, some really relevant people in our field that'll talk about things that they're really good at, whether it's social media or we just had a feeding specialist on or people who developed core vocabulary, which is, um, I feel like we're throwing out so many different buzzwords. I, I, I love the buzzwords. Well, listen, I like, hey, you know, I like the word core anyway. So what <laughs> tells about core, core vocabulary? What's going on there? I'm going to let you explain this because I feel like you'll do so much better than I will. Okay. So Kim has just passed the ball to Benita there. Okay. <laughs> I think I'll start at the basics. So basically we didn't really explain like what a speech language pathologist does and the realms of speech language pathology. So I'll kind of start there and then build up to core vocabulary. Mm -hmm. But speech language pathologists, we have a full spectrum of services that we provide. It's language therapy, speech therapy, which would be the sounds, like if someone is mispronouncing sounds, um, fluency, if someone stutters, uh, feeding therapy, like mm -hmm. Kim said, if someone has trouble either with like the sensory aspect of eating food, like maybe they can only eat foods that are white, mm -hmm. or they actually have like a medical dysfunction mm -hmm. where the food isn't going down like it's supposed to. Um, we do, we provide therapy to adults, uh, cognitive therapy, executive functioning therapy to adults in nursing homes. And then another area would be reading. We work on, cause reading is part of language and then stroke patients, aphasia, we mm -hmm. actually really cover a whole, a whole lot of areas. Yeah. And then AAC, which is, uh, we brought up a couple of times was, which is augmentative and alternative communication. Now that's going to be something like providing a another tool in someone's communication toolbox. So we use phones, we use email, we use Facebook to communicate with others. So someone who maybe cannot use their speech to communicate might need AAC to do that. So it's just another tool in their communication toolbox. So there's this research that's come out recently about the types of vocabulary we should be providing to these individuals who need AAC. A lot of the times we were just providing them with nouns. And so all they could do is request things. And so core vocabulary is like all of those other words besides nouns, like pronouns, verbs, adjectives, oh. prepositions. So we yeah. want to make sure we're providing them access to those words so that they can do more than just requests. I got you. Essentially, yeah. essentially it's the most used words in any language that are most valuable for communication. So if we're teaching kiddos nouns and it's great that I've given you ball or bear or sandwich, but you can actually do so much more with the word more or go or again, like things that you don't necessarily need a specific word. Yeah. They're not hung on a piece of reality. Right. They're, yes. they're really on the process side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're actually a, uh, a situation where you're actually looking at the situation from a distance as opposed to just touching it. You're like looking mm -hmm. at context and so on. Yeah. Like more yes. would be context. Yes. And if we bring it back to the original question, which was what type of guests do we have on the podcast? We have guests that specialize in all of those areas because we can't do it all. Yeah. Really? <laughs> um, I mean, we can do it all, but it's nice to know that someone specializes in feeding or someone specializes yeah. in core vocabulary. And I think it's the same for any field, you know, psychiatry, yeah. maybe children, you know, you work with children's primarily or adults primarily. Yeah, so you can forth. work with a certain subset of people, but like you're not going to be an expert in every single piece of psychology. Really? Yeah. Anyway, we're not going to be. Absolutely. That's why we do Core Brain Journal, because I think a lot of people are interested in these kind of things that you guys are talking about, but they've never had a chance to talk to anybody like this. They have no idea what speech and language pathology is or what to do about it. I feel like most people hear speech therapy and they think that it means we work with a kiddo with a lisp. 
or like just a kid who can't say a specific sound. And that's what the bulk of people think about it and don't realize that there's so much more that goes into our field. That is so, so doggone interesting. Yeah. So then when you have the people on, have you had, do you talk about the biomedical issues that are, like you mentioned the stomach and, and that kind of thing. You guys encourage measurements and that sort of thing to understand what's going on from a laboratory point of view, like I was talking about when I did the sponsor? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we collaborate quite a bit with other fields, whether it is a dysphagia specialist, so someone who specializes in looking at, what do you call that? A modified variant swallow? Yeah. So they look at like, they call it like a swallowing study. So it's almost like an x-ray of someone swallowing food. Yes. And that helps us to know, okay, if we're going to be treating this. What are we actually treating? Mm-hmm. Um, what type of therapy do we do to align with that? And then we work with occupational therapists, which work on Oh, I don't, I hope I don't offend any occupational oh, therapists because no. there's, oh. I think a, there's a lot of misunderstanding about our personal field and then also occupational therapy, but I know like fine motor skills they mm-hmm. work with. And do, can you want to add like, anything to that? Like daily living skills, yes. adaptive skills. And then physical therapists. Yeah. We work a lot with physical mm-hmm. therapists too and other professions as well. So when you say that, you then work with them as a team member regarding that particular client yes. or that group of clients. Right. So then you, they're, they're taking this approach to that particular problem and you're adding your dimension to their activities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's interesting. Now, how do you deal with the group situation? I mean, we started a little bit on that. To me, that's pretty doggone amazing because I'm imagining a class. I mean, it's tough enough dealing with the kids, the kids who are basically there. But when you have developmentally delayed kids and one, two, three other adults, how do you actually structure that? What do you do? I mean, I think the, the key is to work with the team and be on the same page with the team. So you're going to instruct them as to what you want them to do during your lesson, which is mostly just keep the kids on task. And it's way easier, you know, just going back to that patient and positive voice, not to be telling kiddos what not to do. If I'm reading a story and I have a couple people who are off task, I'd much rather pass either a sticker or maybe an an M&M, if that's a, ch- a specific kiddo's reinforcer, like, or just compliment someone else and say, hey, great sitting, Jordan. We focus more on the kiddos that are doing the right thing yeah. to, to kind of pull back those that are that are yeah. off filter a little bit and working with your team to make sure that they're helping everyone attend, you know, or removing a child if they feel like they need a break. That's very interesting. Let me take a break here. I'm going to have this question when we come back, guys. And that is, now we talked about kids for a while, we're going to go over and talk about the adults. And we're going to talk about adults in the same way we're talking about kids, because I think you probably do groups with adults if you get into a residential care. Mm -hmm. And then you have individual difficulties with individual adults. We come back, I'm going to ask you kind of a a little bit of a difficult question. And as where do you have the problems with adults in terms of getting the job done? So folks, we'll be back in just a minute and we'll ask that question to these guys. Thanks for listening. Back in just a moment. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications, and our brief hospitalizations 
arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain, body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSite for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot, they get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ. Yeah, that's Core Brain Journal CBJ. Well, thanks for joining us, folks. We're back to Kim and Vanita, and we're talking about speech pathology, language learning. We're talking about all kinds of different intervention strategies. We've been talking about ASD kids, but we're going to talk about adults now. We're going to talk about, because the kids are not the only folks that are having difficulties with how do they get communication to take place effectively. So let's go ahead. You guys take a shot at that. Who wants to start with what do you do and how do you do it? As it goes to, okay, Kimmer. So under that SLP umbrella, it definitely falls social skills and, you know, pragmatic interventions. And um, I think a big issue that's going on with working with young adults and, and older adults with ASD is that more and more people are working on vocational skills and getting jobs. And this is a pretty complicated area because not as many people as I would like provide opportunities for jobs for adults on the spectrum. And then once you have a job, there's these people have delays in communication and social skills. And there's so many different facets of issues going on on a job skill from just being able to perform and follow directions appropriately to social interaction, you know, and social interaction is so complicated. It's not even just like typical goals that we see people working on, like maintaining a conversation. There's like keeping your body in appropriate space, holding in inappropriate comments or things that are considered rude, talking Mm -hmm. at an appropriate vocal volume, Mm -hmm. keeping eye contact, using a monotone voice. Like there's just so much to social interaction that we don't realize. And that can be really difficult within our field to teach social nuances because there's ASD people run by rules. And like, this is a rule and now I'm going to follow it. Whereas like, There's so much within social that you can't follow a rule. How you act at a funeral is not how you act at a library, is not how you act at a birthday party. So you almost need a different set of rules for every scenario. It's really difficult to teach someone that information. That would be. I'm imagining the complexity of it. It's like if you really think about the human mind, it's a doggone complex situation. The thing that makes it complex is the complexity of reality. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just what you see. Basically, if you have a complexity of reality, then you have all kinds of different boxes to put things in. And if you're not familiar with that specific reality, you're going to freeze up or do something counterproductive because that reality is overwhelming to you. So you probably break down the realities into the ones that are most commonplace and start yeah. the dialogue. Is what, that's what it sounds like, I'm guessing. Is that right? 
Exactly. And you might not realize my husband is actually a pre-vocational coach. So he goes to job sites with young adults between 18 and 22 years old, and he helps them function on their job. And for example, he was working with one young lady at a restaurant a couple of weeks ago, and she was setting tables and rolling utensils and napkins. And I guess she had not like properly fastened her pants and her pants fell down in the restaurant <laughs> at her ankles. Okay. And literally she just continued doing her job like pants at her ankles. And he was like, oh my God, oh my God, you know, and there are patrons in the restaurant at this point. And this was not an issue to her. Like, and my husband was horrified, like, just like, you know, what do I do? She's the girl. I'm a guy. I can't pull her pants up. I know that. Oh, he got a female counterpart and they rapidly solved the problem as quickly as possible. But he was just praying the whole time that there wasn't some like snarky child on YouTube videoing this and posting. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah oh, but, it's too bad. That would have been too bad. And it, thank goodness nothing came of it. But the point is to her, she was like, okay, I have to complete this job task. And like, so I'm not going to do anything, but complete this job task, even if my pants fall down. Yeah. You could spin that out to dedicated worker. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And absolutely. You know, so then uh, that would have been an interesting uh, developmental opportunity in terms of discussing that and so on and how do you, how you prioritize that sort of thing. That would have been an interesting conversation. So then how about the, do you go to nursing homes and that sort of thing, residential care facilities? We can. I don't specifically, mm-hmm. but we definitely can do that. Yeah, I don't at this point in time. I have in the past, but not at this time. But I mean, I would think that it's the same kind of thing because you got a group of people and they're all trying to figure out what the, that next level is. And there's some yeah. elementary training that you can say, here's, here's a way to think about it and then start to get some feedback and have a little bit of group process going on there. It'd be very interesting yeah. to, to see how that actually goes. Mm-hmm. It'd, be, it'd be very helpful. So the next question is, what do you do when you hit some adversity? Where do you see, let's just, Stay with whichever group you want to. But I think, you know, take the one that's going to be, I tell you, let's break it up. One of you take the kids and one of you take the adults. What's the most difficult child you've had to work with? And the other one takes the most difficult adult that they've had to work with and how they actually turn the corner with that person. That would be fun. Okay, sure. Do you want to, do you have someone you're thinking of or? I do, but I think I'm going to put a little bit of a spin on it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, my favorite thing is when I I work in the school setting and my favorite thing that happens is I'll go into a school and I'll speak with whether it's another speech language pathologist or a teacher and they'll tell me this child is extremely difficult, there's no potential for learning. So for me, I don't know that there is that child that is that challenging because when I end up meeting the child, so I'll tell these teachers or speech language pathologists, okay, can I see the child? Because you're telling me one thing, but let me see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that honestly, I think that the hardest thing of working with a child or even like an adult is either the people that are supporting them or the parents. And I don't know how you feel about that. So it's kind of figuring out how we can work with them to better support that child. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'll give an example. There was one child that I was working with and the team, like I said, was like, okay, he can't learn. He's not picking up on anything. And so when we sat down with the child and started showing them what they should be doing and giving them practical strategies. And they saw that he could do those things. It like completely turned them around. And another thing I like to do with those family members and the people supporting those children is kind of meet them on their level by asking them questions like, okay, what 
is most challenging for you? What could help you better help this child? So I don't really go in with like telling them, okay, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. Mm -hmm. And that'll make him more successful. I start by asking like them questions and kind of pulling out and making them feel like responsible for, Mm -hmm. you know, better supporting them. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, it's such a seduction to go in and give answers Mm -hmm. because they want answers. Right. Exactly. Tell me exactly what to do. Yep. The problem is every answer to a question like that has a categorical implication and doesn't deal with the complexity. So you don't really, and they're like, I'm not going to think about the complexity. Just give me some kind of cookie cutter, something I can do. And it isn't cookie cutter. Yeah. So Kim, what were you going to say? I was going to say from the adult or, or um, I've worked a lot recently with high school students with ASD. I think that honestly, the most difficult thing about that is that time is not on your side and that you've lost like a big window to make some serious impact. And what's happened is a lot of times, you know, these parents are completely overwhelmed. And many years ago, there wasn't resources the way there are now. Mm -hmm. So like they were dealing with health, sensory, feeding, academic communication deficits. So a lot of times things go by the wayside, things like diet. And I think that we get individuals in patterns and it makes it really hard to change. Like I have kids with, with feeding scenarios that literally the child eats like a really sugary yogurt or pudding and will eat three of those each day and like a bag of Doritos. And that's what they will eat. Yeah. Now we're talking all day, every day for 10 years. Like imagine how that impacts their their brain function. And then for me as a therapist to come in and try to change that, you know, doing anything that you do for 10 years is an incredibly long time to try to make a difference. So but, some serious tapes go down in that situation. Then you, you know, what do you do? Put sh- sugar on the hot dog? I mean, oh, yeah, it's, it, it's so crazy, you know, but that being said, I feel like, you know, sometimes people also forget about what students can do. And it's really nice when I've seen some high school students be able to start spelling or putting sentences together with some intensive intervention that maybe that's a skill that their parents long ago gave up on. So Mm -hmm. it's nice to be able to see that happen. And it does, it does happen all the time, but it's all about consistency. Yeah. And finding the little positive thing that they do. do. You know, here's a little thing. Good job. That's what we're talking about right there. That opens the door a little bit so we can actually get it done. Yeah. That's, Mm -hmm. that's a biggie. Were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say, like, there's always this phrase that goes around in our field too, to like assume competence. And I feel like I go into every meeting that I have, assuming that this child can do more than what he's displaying now. And you have to have that mindset because they can, they can only go up from here. Well, I've seen that same thing happen in addiction medicine. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I really stopped working in addiction medicine is because the entire scene is set up to pathologize the individual. You're only a drug addict. You're just an alcoholic. So that whole thing goes on repeatedly in very negative ways. And you can't, you can't change the system. These people are like, I've been in recovery for 20 years. That's what they said when I was went through recovery. And so the whole group of them just winds up being negative. And says, saying, wow, that was a heck of a good job. You did a show right there. Well, don't give them a false sense of hope. Yeah. That's not, that may not be true. Yeah, oh, my gosh. I just had to, I had to get out of it. Yeah. Now, there, there are a lot of good recovery centers that don't do that in the country. Mm-hmm. But it's a big problem because it's the same kind of thing you're talking about is how do you bring that person along who's compromised in some way? Their life is a shambles. How can you find that piece of them and pull them out so they can actually do something with it? It's, it's pretty doggone yeah. 
It's a big challenge. It's true. It's actually pretty cool with people with ASD that like we can take some of those hyper Rain Man skills and OCD qualities. Yeah, yeah. And really turn that into a workable job skill. I have to say, like, yeah, yeah. They're so specific about wanting to put everything exactly in its place, and they make great filers and great office cleaners and great. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots of functional skills. Yeah, they're on it. They're on it definitely. I've seen a couple of things like I definitely can explain for sure. Like one time, I think I told you this a long time ago, probably like 12 years ago, I saw, I was working with a kid right when iPads first came out. And for whatever reason in his house, they even turned the ringer off and he, he could like feel the like current of the, the electrical current or something on the phone. And every single time he would scream and run up the stairs screaming maybe I want to say like a second before the phone rang Wow! and, it, and they turned off the what? ringer thinking it was the ringer. And it wasn't like, because oh it still God. happened. How crazy. That like, I, you know, there are some ASD skills and talents that we just haven't even, you yeah, know, tapped into yeah. the surface on. And we so. can learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation guys. You know, that time went by so fast. I think talking to two of you, <laughs> it, it throws me off a little bit because I'm not, yeah. not paying attention. To She's interesting. She's interesting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, how do I get them both? Of, oh my gosh. It's, it's an interesting thing, but listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Let's, Go ahead and plug where you guys want to send people so we can get them connected with you. Of course, these are all going to be in the show notes, but let's go ahead and do that if you don't mind. Sure. So you can find us on Instagram at SpeechySideUp. That's S-P-E-E-C-H-I-E-S-I-D-E-U-P. And our website is the same.com. As is our podcast, SpeechySideUp. And we have our social book series, uh, Lou Knows What to Do. It's available through Boys Town Press. Is it on Amazon? It is. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. Like I said, we have five titles out at this time. That's great. That's great. So that's great. We'll go, I'm going to have all that stuff in the show notes. I was writing down so that it, you've got it branded well now because you've got the podcast, the website, and the Instagram. So we'll talk about that. And we'll, I look, really appreciate you guys coming on board. And listen, if you have some other wrinkle, you say, hey, Parker, here's something we didn't get into that I think your audience would be interested in. Give us a call. We'd be more than happy to talk to you. We appreciate what you're doing out there. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Hang on, guys. I'm going to talk to you after we get offline. Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.